just want to spend a few minutes with you this morning thinking about what to me has always been one of the stranger passages in the Torah. It comes from this morning's parsha, as you might imagine, and it is included in a description of how the high priest is supposed to be ordained. So we have information about the clothes that the high priest will wear. That's sort of the first half of the parsha, and then switches its attention to what this ordination ceremony would be. It's an extensive description and tells you all about the clothes, the breastplate, the robes, tells you about what covers were on everything, what colors were to be used in the weaving of the robes, what gems were to be made to fit into the breastplate that the priest was supposed to wear. And then after the description of the clothes, you get the description of the ordination ritual itself. So it involves the sacrifices of a bull and two rams, so one bull and two rams. In each case, Aaron and his sons take their hands and lay their hands on top of the head of the animal that is being sacrificed. The animal is then killed, and something is done with the blood of the animal, the blood that's taken out of the animal's body. The bull's blood, if you were paying attention this morning, is put on the horns of the altar. It was actually also described in the Haftarah. So the bull's blood goes onto the horns of the altar. The first ram's blood, again, there are two rams, the first ram's blood is sprinkled on each side of the altar, and then that ram is taken and put onto the altar and entirely burned up. Ben Kreschel is probably enjoying this so far. <laughs> after the ram is killed, the second ram, after the ram is killed, this is where things seem to me to get odd. The blood from the second ram is taken. Some of the blood is put on Aaron's right ear, the top of Aaron's right ear. Some of it is put on his right thumb, the blood from the second ram, and some of it is put on his right toe. So right ear, right thumb, and right toe. It's actually Aaron and his sons as well. And this is part of the ordination ritual. And one thing I've learned over the years in studying some of these texts is that if a biblical passage seems odd to me, it probably seemed odd to the sages who were trying to understand what the text means, the Talmudic sages going back to ancient times. And sure enough, in the Midrashic commentary, there are a number of interpretations of what this ritual was about with the blood on the ear, the thumb, and the big toe. Two particular explanations I'll give you this morning. They're both metaphoric in nature. The first has to do with the role that the priest plays as he ministers to the people. So part of the priest's job, this is according to the Midrash, is to be able to listen to the people. When they're worried about something, they have to feel that the priest is there to listen to their concerns. The priest is part of their community, person they can go to, a person that they can confide in. And in order for the people to feel comfortable, the priest has to be a sympathetic, sympathetic uh, presence and a good listener, right? So that may be one of the reasons why the blood goes onto the ear, reminds the priest that he has the function of being someone who will listen to the concerns of the people. But of course, listening is not enough, right? That's not only enough. The priest also has to act on behalf of the people, and so some of the blood goes onto the hand of the priest, in this case the right thumb, symbolizing the action in ancient world, the right hand was considered to be the hand of power, the seat of power. So the blood and the thumb symbolizes that responsibility. 
And last but not least, the priest has to meet the people where they are. We actually still use that language today. Has to walk out among the people, be part of the community, a presence in their day-to-day -day lives. And so some of the blood goes onto the priest's foot to remind him that as he listens to the people, as he acts for the people, that's the hand, he also has to be among the people, walk out among the people. And that's the foot. That's Midrashic explanation in terms of metaphor number one. Second explanation is actually a little bit more compelling to me, also involves a little bit of chronological juggling. juggling. So the, the name of this week's Parsha is what? Titzaveh. Thank you, Ben. So, so it's Titzaveh, and that means that next week's Parsha is? Kit, who said that? Very good. Thank you, Michael. So Kitisa. And what happens in Kitisa? It's the golden calf episode. That's right, Steve. The golden calf episode, not the not the, the, the greatest moment in the history of the Jewish people. So uh, this week we're reading about the high priest, the clothes, and the blood ritual with the ear, the thumb, and the toe. Next week we're reading about the golden calf. There is a rabbinic principle that is often cited in rabbinic commentary. The rabbinic principle is Ein muktamu me'echar batorah. Ein muktamu me'echar batorah means you don't have to apply normal chronology when you're dealing with the commentaries of the Torah or understanding the order of events in the, in the Torah. And in fact, the rabbis believed that the sin of the golden calf, which we won't read about until next week, actually happened before all of the events that are talked about in this week's Torah portion. So they just kind of took the chronology and flipped it a little bit backwards. And the reason they do that is because in the rabbi's eyes, the commands to build the tabernacle and all of the rituals that are associated with that, those come about as a response to the sin of the golden calf, okay? So now if the sin of the golden calf has already taken place, again, you have to allow yourself to flip the chronology like that, but if the sin of the golden calf has already taken place, then we have another interesting way to think about the ritual where the blood goes on Aaron's ear, thumb, and toe, and, it, and it's this. The ordination ceremony, the blood is being sprinkled on these parts of Aaron's body. In a way, it becomes an atonement for Aaron's involvement with the sin of the golden calf. Here's how it works. This is how the Midrash describes it. Aaron's ear heard the words of the Ten Commandments. And the second commandment is lo yeh Elohim acherim al panai. You shall not have other gods before me. Aaron's ear heard those words at Mount Sinai, and yet Aaron's ear listened to the people when they demanded that he build an idol, okay? Aaron's hands had been dedicated to God's service, but then those were the hands that took the gold from the people, threw it into the fire, and what came out? The golden calf. Actually says in the text there, Vayetzar, Aaron formed the calf. He formed it and shaped it. And then finally, Aaron's feet, which had walked part of the way up Mount Sinai with Moshe, with his brother Moses, taking Aaron close to God's presence, those were the same feet that when things got a little dicey, had to run to do something terrible, leading the people in worshiping an idol, the golden calf. So when you put the blood on the ear, the thumb, and the toe, what you're really doing is you're rededicating those parts of Aaron's body that went astray right, that went astray, trying to bring them back in proper service of God and God's Word. And one of the things 
that's striking to me about that midrashic text is the way it illustrates how our, our qualities, our characteristics at the end of the day are morally neutral. neutral. Like an ear is morally neutral. An ear is not bad or good. A hand is not bad or good. A foot is not bad or good. It just does what it's been told to do by you, <laughs> by your brain, right? You decide whether to listen or not to listen. You decide whether to walk out or not walk out. You decide what your hand is going to do, what project your hand is going to tackle or not to tackle. And how Aaron chooses to use those parts of himself, that's what makes the difference here. When he chooses to listen to the wrong message or use his hand in the wrong way to make an idol, and then, okay, you know the rest of the story at that point. And something that works across the board. I think probably the best example is, is brilliance. And we think about brilliance, and, and generally we think about brilliance, we say, that's something, I would like to be brilliant. It's a desirable quality. That's the way we normally think about it and normally understand it. But the truth of the matter is brilliance is really a morally neutral thing. You can, I'll give you a pop culture illustration. James Bond, how many James Bond fans we have out there? People even know who James Bond is anymore? Yeah. This is generational, look, all the, okay, I was going to say older folk, but the mature folk over here, and the younger folk, with James Bond, we, a couple, a couple James Bonders, okay, okay. So James, think of the villains that James Bond fights. What, they're always geniuses. Every single James Bond villain is a genius, right? James Bond never fought a dumb villain. I mean, what fun would that be? What fun would that be? But of course, the, the, the genius that the villain has in these movies is used in the, in the worst possible way. And in real life, you don't have to look too far, and generally, honestly, not much farther than the front page of the newspaper or the headlines running on your TV screen to find someone who was brilliant or intellectually gifted or gifted in some other way, much more so than, than, than regular people, but using the gift that they have in terrible ways, terrible, terrible ways. And, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why we need religion in the world. And in our lives, our world tends to overemphasize an individual's qualities and capabilities. If someone is, is strong, I mean, we do this with sports all the time, someone's strong or fast on the athletic field, whatever it might be, and we put them up on a pedestal and we idolize them and we expect certain things from them. But faith is less interested in the level of a person's talent and much more interested in what a person chooses to do with the talents that they've been blessed with, the talents with which they've been blessed. The person who uses the talents that they have, regardless of those talents, if they use them with kindness and caring, if they use them with, with wisdom and insight to make the world a better place, to make the lives of others better, then that is the person, in terms of faith, who is religiously celebrated, religiously honored. And so I think it's something we can all do. Take the talents that we have, we know them better than anyone else, and dedicate those talents in the same way and with the same spirit so that our lives will be better, the lives of people we know and love will be better, and that the world itself will be a better place because we are in it. Shabbat Shalom.